you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Airing the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination and godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to Airing the Addisons. I am a uh, substitute host for the show this afternoon, and I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Wesley Biblical Seminary, uh, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. Uh, we're located here in the Jackson uh, metro area of the state of Mississippi, and it's a thrill to be back with you. Um, I had subbed uh, for the show a few months back and talked about the book of Psalms, and so I'm excited to be back with you today and tomorrow. So if you want to tune in again for a second part, I'm going to be talking about uh, the book of Revelation. Um, as some of you may or may not know, um, I, I said I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, so I have a PhD in biblical studies, specifically Old Testament, and I teach a number of seminary-level courses here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we're training trusted leaders for faithful churches. And uh, most recently, in this past fall semester, I taught a 600-level course on the book of Revelation. A lot of people uh, enrolled in that course. A lot of those uh, were auditors. And I'll let you know, if you want to go deeper in your knowledge of Scripture, seminary is not just for clergy, not just for your pastors and for missionaries, but seminary is for everyone. It's a place where you can come and strengthen your biblical knowledge. Um, You can have great Christian fellowship with other people who are also going deeper with you in the classroom, but also uh, have a more sophisticated view and of the technicalities of, theolog- of theology and doctrines and dogma and beliefs, um, specifically within the Wesleyan Arminian tradition. So at Wesley Biblical Seminary, what sets us apart from some of our peers is uh, our emphasis on the inerrancy of Scripture as well as the doctrine of holiness, and particularly the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification, uh, which may scare uh, some people, but I'll say that doctrine of entire sanctification is something that's very often misunderstood, and that's another conversation conversation uh, for a different day. So nonetheless, um, we want to talk about the book of Revelation today. It's one of the books of uh, the New Testament canon that many people, including myself, before putting the study together for the students at Wesley Biblical Seminary, are very intimidated by. It's a difficult book. Uh, there's so much symbolism as a genre of literature that's called apocalyptic literature. We'll talk more about that here uh, before too long. Uh, but a lot of people uh, seem to just avoid the book because it's one that's more difficult to interpret uh, and to understand. A lot of the symbolism is historically and culturally conditioned. And so it's not always clear what the symbols mean when we come and we encounter them in the book of Revelation. And so it's one of these books that I think think that, uh, you know, a lot of times the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the interpretation of the text, when we sit down and read like one of Paul's epistles, for example, the epistle to the Romans, the beloved, one of the beloved Pauline epistles of the New Testament, um, there's just like a clear line of argumentation, plain language. Uh, There's less cultural and historical barriers to overcome. And even like the parables of Jesus, yes, a lot of those parables or teachings of Jesus, like the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, um, certainly have historical, culturally conditioned elements to them, uh, but they tend to translate more easily over into a contemporary audience. And so as readers of Scripture, those who hunger for the Word of God, I'll point out that the Holy Spirit cultivates that hunger, 
Um, a lot of times we find ourselves gravitating towards these scriptures that are less culturally conditioned and more have more of a universal voice. And so the book of Revelation doesn't exactly fall in that category because there's so much uh, symbolism. And so um, I was really intimidated by this book, not just because of the symbolism and the genre or type of literature that it is as apocalyptic literature. I'll talk more about the literary genres of the Bible here in just a moment, uh, but also because there's a lot of debate surrounding this book. There's so many different views, a lot of which really cause, uh, to be frank, some division uh, within our churches. Uh, I'm speaking specifically about the millennial views. You've probably heard terms like pre-millennialism and post-millennialism and Ah, or a millennialism, and uh, and some of those views they get a little bit complicated and technical, and there have been a lot of again heated debate and ink spilled over these issues, and so it's it's one of these things that it's like you know what I think I'll just avoid the book as much as as long as I can, but even that avoidance of a more difficult text or a hotly debated text is not an option for us. Um, and the reason why Revelation, we have to include it in our study, in our study of Scripture. Uh, there are several reasons why we have to include it, even though it may be a little bit intimidating. Uh, one reason is that it's a part of the Christian canon, uh, that is, the entire Bible. It is the capstone of the canon, Genesis to Revelation. And therefore, we believe, together with the early church who made it a part of the Christian collection of Scriptures, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that it is a a crucial and important word for the universal church. And we believe, of course, uh, in the doctrine of what's called the sufficiency of Scripture. And the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture uh, says that the Scriptures are complete. That is to say that everything that we need to know to live a life that is fully pleasing to God can be found in this collection of books that makes up the single book, Genesis to Revelation. Now, um, that seems pretty plain and commonsensical on its surface, the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything that we need to know is in the book. Uh, uh, but the, the, cruci- the, the importance or the essential nature of that particular doctrine comes through a little bit clearer when we explain it this way. If the Bible includes everything that we need to know to live a life that's fully pleasing to God as Christians, then to add to the Scriptures would mean asking more of people than what God requires in order to satisfy him and his will and to be redeemed. That's why we don't add to the scriptures. There's biblical support for this, in fact, that we're going to see here even in the book of Revelation. Uh, But in addition to that, we can't take away from the scriptures. If we take away from the scriptures, as God has, through the Holy Spirit, overseen the process of the transmission of the text over time, then we're preventing people from seeing and understanding and engaging the things that he requires of us as Christians. And so we cannot be exclusive or selective in what we decide to study or not study in the Scripture, because this book of Revelation, along with other books that may be hard to read, like Leviticus, is required. It's a part of the collection of texts that God says, you have to know these things in order to live a life that's fully pleasing to me. And so to not read Revelation or any part of the 66-book canon, 66 books specifically for the Protestant tradition, I know that Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, have a little bit of a different collection, and they include some of the apocryphal books. That's a different discussion for a different day, but let's go with the, the, the common denominator of the 66 books. To take away from those or to neglect any of those is to ignore some of the commands of God that he gives to us as his 
people. And so we have to include it in our study, even though it may be difficult. Now, uh, I, I say that as a point of encouragement, not as a point of condemnation or ridicule. And I, I, th- I want to I follow that up with another point of encouragement, that yet while certain parts of the Bible, including the book of Revelation in this case, are particularly hard to understand, right? It doesn't mean that we can't understand and that we just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, I'm never going to get it because I don't have the mind of a scholar. I can't read Greek and Hebrew. I don't understand history. That is no excuse. And the reason it's no excuse is because we believe that the Holy Spirit is the advocate, the comforter, the paraclete, the one who, the helper, the one who comes alongside of us, which is what paraclete means, the one who's called on alongside of us to help us understand the text. So I talked a moment ago about the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scriptures have everything needed to uh, live a life fully pleasing to God, but we also uh, promote and talk about, because it's scriptural, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, which says that the message of the text of Scripture is clear for those who read it, seeking to love and obey God with the help of the Holy Spirit. So while it may be a hard book, we have help. (laughs) We have a helper. You know, these are eternal things that we find in the Scriptures. They're difficult things. They're things that, as I've been studying Scripture as my full-time vocation and calling as a minister of the gospel uh, for nearly 20 years now, and I continue to find new things. And I'm more convinced with every day that passes that there is an eternity more in the text that I will never be able to fully exhaust. And the reason for that is that it is a divine text. It comes from the eternal one. It comes from the I am of Exodus 3.14, from God himself. Now, because it's eternal, it doesn't mean it's eternally complicated, because the Holy Spirit can interpret to our hearts the meaning of the text. And sometimes he does that using human agency, right? So it doesn't always necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit just whispers into our ears what the text means. That can be the case. We hear stories about that, especially at turning points of church history with Martin Luther and John, or excuse me, John Wesley, etc. Uh, but sometimes the Holy Spirit's help for our interpretation of the text and arriving at the clarity of meaning could come through him sending a human instrument or agent to come alongside of and teach and expound the text. We see this in Scripture as well. The book of Ezra, of course, Moses would have been an expounder of text. Ezra was an expounder of text. Jesus explained the text to his disciples as well, specifically to his critics, that is, the Pharisees. He said, you read the text, but you don't understand what it means. Let me help you understand what it means. And so that's why that's part of why we have seminaries and Bible teachers and the proclamation of the word, the exposition of the text from the pulpit, is because that's the version of the Holy Spirit coming alongside us, helping us to be nourished on the eternal word of God. Okay, all that being said, so Revelation's possibly an, an intimidating book, right? At the same time, uh, we must read it because it's in the canon, and we can understand it because we have the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it. Now, I'll say here, we're going to be together today and tomorrow afternoon, and obviously that is very insufficient for any sort of thorough coverage of the book of Revelation. We'll probably get through one or two verses, maybe even one verse. I don't know exactly how far we'll get. We'll follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but I will say uh, that while I'm just a, a substitute host for the show, that I do have a podcast called Seminary Unboxed. That's Seminary Unboxed. Uh, 
It's the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And as of January, I started into a, a long series of episodes or installments on the book of Revelation. And so you can subscribe to that podcast, listen to those episodes, and we're going to go through the entire book. And it's probably going to take quite a while, but, uh, but we're going to do it. I'm still in chapter one, even though we just started in, uh, in January. So if you want to go deeper and you want to know more, I point you to the podcast, Seminary Unboxed. Um, I, I do want to say one more thing before jumping into the text of the book of Revelation, and that is I mentioned earlier that seminary is not just for your pastor. It's not just for missionaries, full-time clergy, ministers of the gospel. It's for everyone. And I said that we're in Jackson, Mississippi. Well, you don't have to come to Jackson to attend classes at WBS, right? So if you enjoy this sort of teaching, going deeper, thinking some more sophisticated thoughts with greater technicality and nuance so that you can more accurately defend the faith and glorify God with your mind, right? Love the Lord your God with your your soul, your heart, your mind, your strength. Mind is in there, right? Um, Our course delivery modality, that is the way in which people take courses with us, is through Zoom. You can come to the building if you're in the Jackson metro area and sit in the classroom with the professor. Uh, However, if you can't or you're somewhere else in the country or even in the world, we have students from over 30 countries studying with us and they Zoom into their live classes. And let's say you can't come in at the particular time of the class. Well, every class is recorded so that you can rewatch it at a later time. So I encourage you in that direction if you feel called to such. So, okay, um, before we take our first break here, let me just say, and before we jump into uh, an exposition of the text itself, um, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. Let me say that typically we, there's all sorts of like what we call preamble or introduction to interpreting the text. And I just want to, have, I want to touch on just a few of those things quite briefly um, because it helps set what's we, what we call the interpretive frame. Um, we have to understand who the author is, understand the date of writing, the purpose and occasion of the writing. Now, we can't get into all those things in the time that we have, uh, but I do want to talk, touch at very least on authorship. And we'll talk about, um, after our break... Uh, John. In verse 1, it says John, uh, you know, that this book is written to John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Well, who is this John? Um, And that's what we'll discuss. And after we talk about identifying John the author, we will jump into the first verse. So hang tight with us. We'll come back. We'll talk about John, and then we'll get going in the first verse. Can I go?
Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm uh, Dr. Matt Ayers with Wesley Biblical Seminary, subbing for airing the Addisons today, and we'll be together tomorrow as well. We're talking about the book of Revelation. So I want to pick up where we left off, and uh, before just jumping into the text, we typically, um, in doing good hermeneutics and good, robust, you know, strong exegesis, we have to set a a, a bit of an interpretive framework. Now, in seminary classes or in Bible college or whatever, maybe even your pastor in doing a biblical study, uh, we'll spend several hours doing this. We don't have that time. So I just want to talk about authorship really quickly and answer the question, who wrote this book? Now, normally, the answer to that question is really straightforward, right? We'd say, well, Paul wrote this epistle, or Matthew wrote this gospel, or Solomon wrote this particular Song of Songs, or David wrote this psalm, Moses wrote this. So, But with the book of Revelation, it's a little more complicated, um, because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. The first phrase is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So technically, Jesus is the originator of this book. Now, of course, of course, because of the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, we say that God is the originator of all of the Scriptures, right? However, uh, we have human words and human accounts uh, that God inspires versus the direct and definitive declarations of God himself. So, for example, um, we know in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, God says, let there be light, and God himself is speaking directly in that moment, versus uh, God speaking, let's say, through a prophet, when Nathan goes to uh, David in the midst of his sin and says, sir, you are the man. Uh, God is speaking through David with an instrument of David, right, as a means to, to pass along the message. So here the book of Revelation is a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. So he is the originator of this text. We'll talk more about that here in a moment, but I will say that John, or excuse me, Jesus then received this, receives the revelation from God. So verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And then it goes on to say, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So Revelation's a bit unique when we talk about authorship. So ultimately, God the Father gives the revelation to Jesus, and Jesus sends it to John through an angel, and John then sends it on to the churches. So we have many degrees of separation here between God the Father and the recipients of the revelation. But in particular, when we talk about human authorship, not to bypass or undermine the humanity of Jesus, right? Right Christology, right? Thinking about who Jesus is, that he is fully human. He's fully God and fully man. He's fully divine and fully human. And that's another discussion for another day, why we have to say it that way. It's the way the early church worked it out with the help of the Holy Spirit. We say he's fully man because he cannot redeem anything that he has not fully assumed. In any case, um, let's talk about John as the human author, or at least the mediator, the one sending this revelation onto the seven churches that are in Asia, as well as to us today. Um, Scholars debate over who John is. Now, that may come as a surprise to you, because you probably thought, well, isn't it the same John that wrote the fourth gospel and first, second, and third John? Um, Many scholars think, yes, that's exactly who this John is. I count myself among those. In fact, I believe that John the Apostle, who wrote the fourth gospel as well as one, two, three John, is the human agent of this particular book of Revelation. Now, um, why... Uh, do we think that, or why would anyone question that? Well, uh, there's a couple reasons. To start off, scholars question whether or not 
the Apostle John is the human author of the book of Revelation for one primary reason, right? So if we were in seminary class, there's probably be a question on your test. Uh, and that primary reason is the difference in language. The writing style is quite different from what we find in John's Gospel, as well as the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, now, uh, to me, that's not enough evidence, and the reason that that's not enough evidence is because my rebuttal to that objection to apostolic John authorship is that, of course, the writing's different. This is a completely different genre of literature. It's a different kind of literature. C.S. Lewis wrote moral treatises and theological orations, but he also wrote science fiction and poetry. And would you know that C.S. Lewis is the author of this poem laid alongside of Mere Christianity or A Grief Observed, for example, right? So different genres call for different styles. The same author can—you can even go to movie directors, right? The same director—Steven Spielberg can direct an adventure film, or he can direct a drama, or he can direct a comedy. And there might be little indicators of Spielbergness in there, but they're going to be altogether different because they're achieving something different. They're after a different outcome. So um, I don't think that's a strong enough argument. And then there are all sorts of other reasons why I think the Apostle John is the the author. Uh, the main reasons we find in verse 4, as well as at the end of the book, where it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And John, it just says John. It doesn't say John the, or, or John with a last name, right? And so there are no qualifiers. And these are the seven different major church centers in Asia Minor. So John is on a first-name basis with a large group of Christians in a very difficult time in the church very early on. In other words, if he doesn't have to give them any other qualifiers, he's well-known. He doesn't have to specify which John. And in my opinion, John the Apostle would be the number one candidate of being a well-known person with a very common name. So um, the fact that he doesn't have to qualify to me is further proof. Now, there's other evidence, too. Uh, lots of other what we call Christological themes that line up perfectly with the fourth gospel of John. So all that said, we typically identify John as the author, uh, and I think it is the Apostle John. And there's other discussions about apocalyptic literature and whether or not this is... Uh, um, a, a pseudonymous authorship, that is a fake name, someone else writing in the name of John. Those are all sorts of discussions that we don't, you can't get into here, but we can get into in other contexts like the my podcast or in a class at seminary or in Bible college. So uh, nonetheless, that being said, John the author, first century Christianity, the church is facing tremendous persecution because of their resistance and refusal to participate in the what we call imperial cult, that is the worship of Roman deities and the, or excuse me, the ro- the worship of Roman uh, Caesar emperors as well as Roman deities, the pantheon of gods. They will not participate, right? And that's a problem for the government because people they believe that their well-being and the stability and peace of life, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the peace of the kingdom, was to a large degree the result of the gift of the gods for homage that the people paid to those gods. If you just pay homage to the gods, our stability will continue. So if things went wrong in the ancient world, and specifically in this case in Rome and in the Roman Empire, the assumption was the gods aren't happy with us. 
And why would the gods be not happy with us? Well, that's because people who aren't paying us their debts, they're not worshiping us, we're not being acknowledged for what we've done, therefore we will make you pay. Whether that's in the form of natural disasters, fires breaking out, economic hardship, whatever it may be. And so anyone who resisted or refused participation in the imperial cult is going to pay, it's going to be persecuted, and in some cases even put to death. Now, some of you may be thinking what I'm thinking, well, this sounds familiar. Um, We can cross the contextualization bridge and talk about ways in which our contemporary context here in America is becoming more and more like this. If you don't bow, we're going to make life hard for you. Um, Later on in the book, we're going to talk about the mark of the beast, 666, and those who don't have the mark of the beast are refused uh, participation in buying and selling. So a consequence, persecution. So, but it's really important to note that this is a revelation for the persecuted church, and we're going to see that. All right, so let's get started here yet even further with looking at this first verse. And by the way, before we jump in yet again, I'm going to take some phone calls in the later segment uh, of the show. I'd love to answer any questions you may have about Revelation or other items related to Scripture or maybe even Christian doctrine. Um, I will say, however, that I am not (laughs) under the pretense to think that I have all the answers to the questions, so if I don't know the answer, I'm happy to tell you that. Uh, Nonetheless, verse 1, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And I got verse 2 in there as well. So uh, the first thing that I want to talk about here in these first two verses is the opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because here we have the title of the book. This word that we translate into English, revelation, is a Greek word that is apocalypsis, or apocalypsis, depends on how you want to pronounce that, and it's where we get our word apocalypse from. Now, interestingly enough, in our day and age, we associate the word apocalypse with final things, the end of all things. And the Christian tradition, and this particular Greek word associated with this book, is the reason why we associate it with final things. However, in its original context, apocalypsis doesn't necessarily have anything to do, not anything, but it doesn't necessarily have to be connected with the end of all things. The Greek word apocalypsis just means unveiling. It means an uncovering. So imagine that you've got a Christmas present wrapped in paper. Well, tearing the paper off reveals what's inside, which is why we call this the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting that this is an unveiling. This is the unveiling of Jesus. In other words, it's not that what we're going to get in this book, this revelation, this unveiling, is not something that we can arrive at on our own. There are certain things, truths, realities, that we can arrive at on our own using the faculties of human logic. This is not one of them. We would not know what we know in this book if it weren't for God's intervention. He showed it to us. So it's, this is dependent upon God's intervention to reveal to us what is to come. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what is to come. Um, now, this is a really important notion or concept for Christians, the concept of divine revelation. 
and it has a lot to do with the person of Jesus Christ. It has to do with salvation. Uh, it has to do with the way that we know and don't know certain things. It has to do with how we process realities in the world. We don't have time to treat all those things now, so let's limit this to the immediate context of this book. This revelation, this thing that God is going to uncover for us, is a preview of what's going to happen in the final days. So one question that we have in response to that reality is, well, why is that important? Jesus talks a little bit in the Gospels, and Paul talks a little bit in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, as well as a few other places in his epistles about what's going to happen at the end, right? But Jesus doesn't talk a ton about it, nor does Paul. But here we have quite a long book talking about what's going to happen at the end. Why? Why doesn't God just leave us in the dark? And is it necessary to know? And the answer is, yes, it's necessary to know. And the reason why is to be a source of encouragement, inspiration, and hope for persecuted Christians. So remember in the early church, and as we share this experience now, the church is weird, and the church should always be weird, because we're people of faith. We're people of the supernatural. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We believe that he was God incarnate. We believe that he resurrected from the dead. We believe that he calmed storms, walked on water, healed lepers, etc. So, like, we believe in the supernatural. And as weirdos, we get looked upon strangely, and we refuse to participate in systems of the world that are at odds with what God has revealed in our lives. And that then makes us a target for persecution and ridicule. And so the question is, well, if we have the truth as revealed in Jesus, through the person of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the Christian witness through history, why are we suffering all this persecution? Well, God answers that question in a number of different ways, but his command to us is, be faithful nonetheless because I will have the final word, and make that a source of encouragement and strength to hold on and to remain faithful to the witness. He is giving us a preview of the end outcome so that we have the courage we need to be faithful now. Don't give up because things are hard now. This is not the end. There are better things to come. This is, of course, a pastoral comfort and word, even to listeners now. All of us, right? the kingdom is now, but also not yet. Jesus has not returned. We await his, his second coming. Of course, the full consummation of the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, we all live according to this Christian reality. There are aspects of freedom that we have now in Christ. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom from enslavement to sin. Freedom to love God with all our hearts. Freedom to love others. Freedom to be selfless. Those are all wonderful, immediate, present freedoms that we have in Jesus. But there are other things that we yet to wait for. And we, because the kingdom is not fully consummated, there's still evil in the world. 
They're still leaving the world. So we can't err on the side of triumphalism. And triumphalism would say, if you're sick, it's because you're in sin. All the benefits of the kingdom are available now. Or if you're poor, it's because you're in sin. We say no to those declarations because the kingdom's not fully here yet, right? But we also say no to defeatism on the other side. Where defeatism says, well, evil's still in the world, therefore I'm always going to be a sinner and be stuck in my sin. We say no to that as well. The kingdom is both now, but also not yet. We're not triumphalists. We're not defeatists. But because there is a future hope of vindication and rescue from the evils that remain, we will always have persecution while we wait. And we must hold on and wait for the return of Christ. Be encouraged. This isn't the end. We'll be back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Matt Ayers uh, with you today, airing the Addisons as a guest host. I'm the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, check us out at wbs.edu. Um, if you like the sort of content you're listening to, check out my podcast, Seminary Unboxed. I'm doing an entire series, very in-depth, on the book of Revelation. Uh, we're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in first in the first verse here uh, this afternoon, and we will start taking callers uh, soon. So give me just a couple minutes to make a little more progress, and then we'll uh, start receiving some calls. So we're talking about the fact, uh, asking the question, why would God reveal to us something that we can't arrive at knowledge on our own, what's going to happen in the end, as a source of encouragement and inspiration of hope for us? So, and I would say to listeners now that, look, this is, a, this is a, an image or a preview of what's going to happen in the final times. But even now, if you are going through difficulty, it does not have the final word. If you've experienced the loss of a loved one, if you're going through a sickness or an illness, uh, if you're suffering with a particular, let's say, a mental health issue, it will not have the final word. And I'll also add that God has no waste in his economy. He uses every ounce of suffering for the redemption of the world. So, the revelation— of Jesus Christ. Okay, so a couple things here. There's two ways that we can interpret this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ. One is seeing Jesus as the one who is being revealed, right? Um, so, But that's not how we're to interpret this. Jesus is the one doing the revealing. He's called the, he's the subject of the verb to reveal. So Jesus is doing the revealing. The question is, if Jesus is doing the revealing, what is being revealed. Well, he's revealing the things that must soon take place, as it says in verse 1. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the things that must soon take place. That 
is what is being revealed in this book. Now, I will say, too, that Jesus is in the business of revealing things. So the fact that we have Jesus as the revealer here is not new business for us as Christians. Jesus is faithful to reveal all sorts of things to us in his ministry, both on earth as recorded in the scriptures, in the gospels, through his apostles, uh, but also even today in and through the church. So what are the sorts of things that Jesus reveals in addition to the things that must soon take place? Well, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus reveals to us the nature of God himself. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, is the exact imprint of his very nature. Colossians 2 says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him. So if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Now, this is a big statement, because the same would be true of the church. Now, not in the sense the church is fully God, the way that Jesus is fully God, but the church is the body of Christ. And so the church, by extension of being the representation of Jesus in the world, also reveals God to the world. So if you want to know what God looks like, we should be able to say, look to the church. There you will find him and his love. But nonetheless, Jesus is in the business revealing he reveals God, God's nature, his moral character, his love. Uh, Jesus also reveals to us who we are supposed to be as Christians. Jesus is the true Adam. He is the true man. Jesus is the firstborn of the new race of humanity. That is the Jesus people, right? We know that God created humans, Adam and Eve, in his own image, but because of the rebellion against him and sin making their way, making its way into the world, the image of God and what humans are intended to be was distorted in that moment. So when we look upon a fallen, broken, sinful, hurting uh, individual, or at least even a couple or community, it's not a proper view of what God had in mind when he made humanity. If you, know, if you want to know what God had in mind when he made humanity, don't look at fallen people, look at Jesus. So Jesus reveals God, he reveals humanity, Jesus also reveals our sin, and he reveals us to ourselves. So one of the outcomes of sin is that it distorts our view, it distorts our view of God. It's almost like we're, we're, we have this, this disease in us that's blinded us. Sin. Sin is like a disease that causes blindness, and it blinds us to who God is, it blinds us to who others are, and it blinds us to ourselves. It gets us living into and believing in and embracing deception about who we believe God to be and even ourselves to be. There's a story in the book of John, same author, I would argue. The first words of Jesus in John chapter 1, a couple of the soon-to-be disciples are following him along the road, and he turns to them and says, what do you want? Why? I think he's asking me that question. I think he's asking you that question, because who you are can probably be summed up summed up in your desires, the secret hidden desires of your heart. Interestingly, these disciples, soon-to-be disciples, say to him, well, where are you staying? And Jesus says, follow me and I'll show you. And I don't think Jesus is answering that question of where he's staying, of where he is staying, because he doesn't go on to show them where he's staying. I think he's asking, answering his own question, not their question. What do you want? Jesus is asking us, what do you want? And he's saying, if you follow me, I will show you what you want. So when we follow Jesus, he reveals to us the hidden passions and desires of our hearts, 
so as to then follow up with healing. So Jesus is the king of revelation. So the fact that we have here the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus does the revealing, that's the business that Jesus is in. More we could say there. Let's keep going. Which God, that would be God the Father here, gave him. So this revelation comes from God. Jesus, and this is harmonizes, of course, with the gospel where Jesus says, everything I have has been given to me by my Father. I have nothing which does not come from him. So that would include, of course, this revelation. I gave him to show his servants. Now, this is interesting that they're calling, in this book, they're calling Christians servants. <clears throat> Later on in the book, uh, it, even in the, the first chapter, uh, let's look at verse 5 and 6 really quickly here. Um, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Well, this is interesting, because up here in verse 1, we're his servants, and the Greek word here means slaves. We are his slaves. But later on it says, he has freed us. So are we free or are we enslaved? Now there's a lot we could say here, but let's talk about how. It all depends on which angle you're approaching the Christian, right? So in terms of servanthood, we have been bought by a price. We have been bought with a price. Jesus paid our blood guilt with his own blood. This is what we call the ransom theory of atonement. You, of course, you know Chronicles of Narnia, where Edward betrays, he's treacherous, he betrays the rest of his family, and Aslan exchanges his own life for the other. And so there is the purchasing of one for the other. Uh, There's a substitute, is another way of looking at it. Jesus has purchased us by his blood. But we are also his servants. Now think about first century context here, right? For these persecuted Christians living in the Roman Empire, these Christians are being pressured to be servants of the human powers of government that be. Jesus, by calling his followers servants, are not just reminding them that they've been bought with a price— but he's reminding them that ultimately their service is to a transcendent, supernatural, unseen, metaphysical kingdom. He's affirming them in their faithful perseverance and witness to not become servants of the tyrannical government that rules the world. They are his servants. And as Christians, we can say even today, we are servants first of Jesus. Think about uh, the apostles in the book of Acts when they say, listen, are we to obey man or are we to obey God? Well, we are servants of God first. So to show his servants. And also, this is a call. A lot of people, this is a, a, a call to obedience. Like that's what marks servanthood is not just that we are under like, the control of our master, but there is a call to obedience. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is the king. Yes, he's the slain lamb, but he is also the one with hair that is bright, uh, white as wool. He is a tongue of sword, eyes of fire, feet like burnished bronze, golden sash around his chest. This guy, He's the only resurrected person to a glorified body. I will serve him. If he says, stand on my head, I'm standing on my head. It's a non-negotiable. And so, Our servanthood is a call to obedience because of his unmatched and eternal power, and he can be trusted. 
Now, uh, we're not getting very far here in terms of our text, so I want to open it up. If you have uh, questions for me, please feel free uh, to call in, and I'll keep an eye out for that, and hopefully I have some answers to your questions as we're closing in uh, on our time here. In the, in, the, in the meantime, while I'm waiting for calls to come through, I'm going to keep going here, the things that must soon take place. There seems to be a problem here. Uh, things that, the, the word particular that's an issue is soon. It's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Things that must soon take place. This was written 2,000 years ago, and there are things in here that haven't happened yet. How can we say soon? For it didn't happen soon. There's a few ways that we can answer this. There's a few ways that we can answer this, right? The most common answer that we find throughout church history, the church, you know, we obviously don't have time here to do a history of interpretation of the book of Romans and how through the centuries the church has dealt with various issues in the book. We can say the most common interpretation is this, is that, um, as the famous worship song says, uh, one day in his house is like a thousand elsewhere, that God is not restricted to time and space, that he lives in eternity, and that um, all things are in the, uh, you know, the eternal present of God. Time, God is working on a different timeline than we are. So 2,000 years for God, that is soon. It's, in fact, very fast. And so that's one way that we can answer. So we're working on a divine timeline, not a human timeline, and soon fits that timeline. So we have Steve from Texas. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, hey, thanks for taking my call. Mike, it's kind of a, a comment, and I just want to get your thoughts on it. So yes, I agree that the Holy Spirit guides us through Scripture. Um, now that said, I know there is kind of a divided uh, spirit, if you will, on um, the second coming of Jesus um, and the rapture, whether they're one and the same event, or many of the pre-trib uh, people believe that that's, the, the, that's, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be, you know, the, there's going to be a rapture, essentially, and then we're going to have Jesus come back again, which would essentially be two second comings, or a second and a third coming. So that's where I want to, you know, kind of figure out what your comments are on that, because, again, if we're of the same spirit— how can the Spirit reveal something to me uh-huh. and then essentially reveal something to somebody else in the vast majority? But also my comment is on the, the, the second coming is the, or the rapture being taken place before the seven years that so many people are teaching. That's, uh, from my understanding, that's like a relatively something that's been only around since the 1800s by John Nelson Darby. And you can look to see what he did to people like George Mueller, to the Brethren Church and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the... I just simply read Revelation. I went back to the prophets. I went through Matthew. I went through First uh, Thessalonians and all that stuff. Second Thessalonians, I guess, as well. And and I just came to the realization that there's just one second coming, one final trumpet, and that's when we're all gone. And we're called to persevere and endure all the way throughout the Revel- book of Revelation, all throughout. Persevere, persevere and endure. The cowardly don't inherit the kingdom of God. So that's what I plan on doing and praying for the church to do the same. Thank you, Steve. Those are uh, great comments and questions. And I will say the phone number to call in, I'm sorry, I got to mention that, 888-589-8840. So to call in, 888-589-8840. So Steve, great question. I'm going to deal with them kind of one at a time here. So the one question is, how can we believe in the doctrine of clarity of Scripture, that the message of the text is clear for those who read it, uh, seeking to love and obey God with the help of the Holy Spirit, yet there be so much divergence and lack of unity on particular doctrines, hundreds, if not thousands, thousands of doctrines across the broader body of Christ, right? So uh, that's an excellent question. So the short answer is we are, we are unified and in agreement on all the essentials, but there's freedom on the non 
essential. So on the things that are absolutely essential as relates to salvation and the historical witness of Jesus Christ, we are unified as a church. And that goes across, listen, and I would argue, and you can argue with the point with me if you like, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and even the Protestant traditions. We all agree on the Apostles' Creed stuff. Born of a Virgin Mary, Jesus is fully man, fully God. The Trinity, the divinity, the divine personhood of the Holy Spirit, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the reality of hell, um, the reality, yeah, the reality of even our our bodily resurrection. And so the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture certainly applies universally, but there's a greater clarity that's unified and affirmed through the universal witness of the Church through antiquity up until the contemporary era on the essentials as relates to salvation. Now, on the non—so th- those things, essentials as relates to salvation, would be called dogma, right? Uh, but the things that don't relate to salvation would be doctrine. And then on a lower level still would be belief. Now, we don't have time. Our time is up. Um, we're going to come back tomorrow. And uh, perhaps tomorrow I can come back, Steve, and answer the rest of your question about uh, the rapture and how we deal with that. But it does fall in the category of doctrine, not in the category of dogma. That is, faithful Christians can agree to disagree on that issue. And one of the follow-up comments on that is, no matter what your view is, we have to live a life of urgency and faithfulness and perseverance now. Whether there's a rapture and a first coming, second coming, third coming, however that works, we are called the faithful obedience to Jesus in the midst of persecution. That's the bottom line. But nonetheless, we'll come back, talk more about rapture uh, tomorrow afternoon. We'll see you then, 2 o'clock. Uh, Matt Ayers for Airing the Addisons. Thank you so much for joining us. Check us out, wbs.edu, Seminary Unboxed. It was great to be with you. We'll pick up here tomorrow. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. Faith. Family. Freedom. American Family Radio.